Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with my friend and colleague, Derek Davison. And we are excited to welcome back to the show, I think his third appearance, Samuel Hunicky, who is the author of the excellent Tearing Up the Charts, States of Liberation, <laughs> States of Liberation, Gay Men Between Dictatorship and Democracy in Cold War Germany. Sam, thanks for uh, so much for coming back, man. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So why don't we start where we left off, which is Weimar, Germany. Um, yeah. Weimar, probably when we're talking about Germany and homosexuality, this is the period with the, by far the largest cultural imprint and imagination, yeah. mostly due to cabaret um, and perhaps <laughs> uh, other, other, other famous films or productions. So uh, I, I imagine we're going to start with the Weimar Constitution. Um, yeah. Maybe- but uh, Samuel, please take it away. Yeah, so we sort of we ended with World War One and the sort of effect that that had had on Europe and Germany and the upheaval. And I mean, I guess just to sort of set the stage, um, as some of your listeners might know, um, World War One ends in November of 1918, and really, what sort of allows it to end is a revolution. In Germany, right? You have sailors that start striking in the north of Germany in Kiel, and those um, revolts sort of spread across the country. I mean, these sailors basically get on trains and start spreading across the country. Um, the revolution comes to Berlin on November. They create 9th. Soviets around the country. They create Actually, Soviets, yeah. right? Um, yeah. Which in German is called. It, it's much less interesting. They they create what's called Räterepublik, um, which is sort of you know Soviet means council in English, so it it means council council republics or Soviet republics. But um, right, so they spread across the country. They set up these Soviet republics um, or sort of Soviets in in, in local areas. Um, there are various sort of you know the Bavaria attempts to create its own Soviet republic. Um, the Kaiser abdicates on November 9th. November 9th is this very important date in German history. Um, it's sort of the, the Germans, they call it the Schicksals, um date, the, the date of fate. Um, but anyway, so the Kaiser abdicates, um, and basically the Social Democrats, I mean, actually they're competing announcements in Berlin on November 9th. The Social Democrats uh, from the Reichstag, the parliament building, they declare a democratic republic. It's the literally Kon- Liebknecht. Am I remembering this correctly? It's so literally Lieb- right, Liebknecht. So, so, yeah. so, so Liebknecht is, is across town. He's at the royal palace, and he declares a Soviet republic um, or, or a socialist republic, right? So, so they, um, he and Rosa Luxemburg are the ones who lead the sort of breakaway radical socialists who then form this, you know, the Spartacus Bund, and they eventually become the Communist Party in, in Germany. Um, and they're of course, so so basically, you have this incredible tumult. Friedrich Ebert, who's the leader of the Social Democratic Party, he becomes um, the chancellor, and the, later on, the the first president of the Weimar Republic, and sort of the first. And and we will get to, to sexuality eventually, but I, I I mean this is one of my favorite periods in German history. And it's I think so it's interesting. Of, this is I yeah. think if if ger- if this had succeeded, different twentieth century. I oh, think completely. If, if 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 the socialists had not done what they did. And allied against the Spartacus Bund, I think things could have turned out differently. I don't know. What do you think about that? Let's talk about this for a sec, because I, I, I don't get to yeah, talk about no, my so, history often. 
Yeah, no, no. So basically what happens, right, is that Friedrich Ebert becomes the leader. Um, a few days after the revolution, he has a call with a man named Gruner, who uh, is the new head of the military. And essentially, they make what's become known to the histor- to historians as the Ebert-Gruner Pact. And essentially, this is a pact where the Ebert, who's the leader of the Social Democrats, essentially says to the military and the sort of conservative establishment of you know the bureaucracy and the judiciary and so on and so forth, we aren't going to come after you if you support us in the creation of a democratic republic. And essentially what they do is they ally to take on the Spartacus Bund, the, the communists. Um, and so when the Spartacus Bund attempts this uprising uh, in January of 1919, it's violently suppressed by these groups known as the Free Corps or the Freikorps Corps under the direction of the German military. And these are essentially uh, soldiers who are coming back from World War I, uh, who have been officially demobilized, and then they're organized into these sort of unofficial military or paramilitary units. So those are used um, sort of unofficially by the German military establishment to suppress the Spartacus uprising, but then also these other Soviet republics that have been created around the country. Um, one of the most violent examples is the suppression of the Bavarian Socialist um, Republic of uh, about a year later. Um, so you have essentially this, this moment of opportunity, like you were saying, Danny, where there's sort of, um, like the Russian Revolution, this moment of possibility for workers and farmers and soldiers, sort of ordinary Germans to imagine and envision a completely new way of governing themselves. And essentially that is suppressed by the Social Democrats who decide to take um, you know, to sort of ally with that conservative establishment rather than sort of taking sides with the more radical socialists and the communists to take part in that reimagining. And this is oftentimes seen as the sort of foundational sin of the Weimar Republic, that the social democrats and, the, and then, you know, the communists weren't able to use this revolutionary moment to really start with a clean slate to get rid of the really conservative military establishment, judicial establishment, bureaucracy, and all those elements then um, sort of hang on and are incredibly hostile to Weimar democracy and ultimately help the Nazis into power uh, in 1933. And also the communists and socialists now just fight for the rest of the history of the Weimar Republic. There's no no way of left unity at all. (laughs) There's none at all. And I think, you know, two other important points is is that the Soviet Union really looms large, right? The Soviet, um, the, the October Revolution has you know, happened fairly recently. Um, and I think that that actually looms large for the social Democrats, right? They see what Lenin um, and, and sort of the, the Bolsheviks are doing in the Soviet Union, and that terrifies them. And so rather, I think, had the Russian Revolution not happened the way it did, it's much more thinkable that Liebknecht and Luxembourg wouldn't have broken off from the Social Democratic Party, that you wouldn't have had this sort of divide on the left um, in Germany. Um, and so, you know, basically, Ebert, when he's looking at the situation, he sees the true threat as coming from the far left rather than the sort of the far right. Um, and that obviously is a is a huge error. Um, and as, as you well know, there's this longstanding debate in German social democracy about the role of democracy. And so I think Ebert, his, his position was that he wanted to let the democracy work effectively, that this is the first time right. that you're going to get legitimate democracy, you're going to get mass mass plebiscitarian democracy and so you're going to get socialism and it's going to be better than the soviet union because it's not going to be wrought through violent revolution turns out it didn't work out that way yeah right exactly and i think you know i don't think of abert as like an evil person right i mean it's I i think there are some decisions he made such as you know there's there's evidence that um, higher ups in you know higher up social democrats were in on the murder of um, of Luxembourg and Liebknecht, and I think you know that that 
that's evil. That's that's a that was um, a real tragedy. And I think the other point about the Communist Party, right, is that Luxembourg and Liebknecht were, you know, incredibly important figures to sort of the development of communism um, and and sort of pioneered uh, a slightly different approach to sort of communism and, and to how they envisioned a, a sort of socialist society working than what Lenin believed in. And with their murders in January of 1919, that allowed for a sort of um, it allowed for the German Communist Party to essentially become, you know, more of a subsidiary of the the Russian Communist Party. Right? That that it was it, it was less independent. It became less independent with the murder of these two incredibly important charismatic leaders. Um, so I think that's another important point: is that 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 foreclosed on future possibilities for cooperation between the Social Democrats and and the Communists. So, 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 sort of, you know, this this um, leftist Soviet version of, of democracy is foreclosed on. Uh, what you get is the Weimar Constitution, which is is imp- it's important to point out one of the most sort of progressive documents um, up until that point in history uh, of its kind. Um, it grants uh, universal suffrage. It's one of the first countries to grant um, universal female suffrage. Um, it's around the same time that we uh, we do in the U.S., but, but slightly earlier. Um, and one of the most important points for sexuality is it abolishes pretty much all forms of censorship. Um, so in the imperial era, you have various forms of censorship. And when it comes to writing and talking uh, about sexuality, that does limit what People could do um, so. There are various, you know, important pieces of theater or you know novels or what have you that are censored in the imperial era. So all of that falls away, and what this means is it becomes much easier for people who want to write and think about sexuality to sort of find public outlets for that. Uh, so we talked about Magnus Hirschfeld. In the last episode, he is still very much around. In 1919, he founds the Institute for the Study of Sexual Sciences in Berlin, in a sort of posh central neighborhood of of Berlin. Uh, This becomes a sort of focal point and gathering place for queer Berliners. Uh, He has a clinic there where he's able to counsel um, and see various sort of um, patients. Uh, He has a museum there that Various people went to sort of frequent, such as Christopher Isherwood, who writes in, in various places about going to visit this museum and seeing sort of, you know, uh, various uh, sort of physical elements from the, from the German history of sexuality. Um, his uh, humanitarian, um, scientific humanitarian committee continues its work, continues to pressure uh, the legislature to reform paragraph 175, this law that, that criminalized sodomy and continued to criminalize sodomy in the Weimar era. Um, and then you have other groups that start to sort of, um, you know, arise. You have uh, a man named Friedrich Radzuweit who sort of starts a publishing empire uh, and publishes all sorts of new magazines aimed at queer audiences. So um, he publishes a magazine called Die Freundin, or The Girlfriend, for lesbian audiences. He publishes various magazines and and journals for gay audiences. And these reach much bigger audiences than the sort of smaller publications that we talked about last time uh, had reached. So you just, at that level, have a much... I wanted to ask that question, actually. So is this related also to the rise of a new mass politics and how that fits into this? Because is there... Berlin is also experiencing a population boom at this time. And in fact, correct me if I'm wrong, but Berlin still hasn't reached the levels 
of the 1920s in terms of absolute population, or did it just pass it? It uh, just passed yeah. it. Yeah, it just yeah. passed it. Right. Uh, I mean, this uh, is hundred years. Yeah, but so yeah. so people are flocking to Berlin. I mean, I think I, I just wanted to maybe maybe could give a sense of Berlin at this time and what is yeah. happening in Berlin. No, absolutely. Yeah. So, so Berlin, it's obviously the capital of Germany. Um, it, it both, it, people are flocking there. Um, it also, it, um, annexes a lot of the neighboring, uh, sort of suburbs and cities. And so for instance, Schoenberg, which is one of the main gay sort of neighborhoods of Berlin gets annexed, um, at some point in the early 20th century. I don't remember the exact date. It might, it might've been right before the war, right after the war. Um, but so you have that's, and you know, other cities in the U S and other places also do this. They, they annex, you know, the, the places around them. So Berlin is both growing, uh, in terms of its geographic footprint and because people are flooding there. Um, it's, you know, sort of seen as the capital of modernity, right? It's this place where, um, the technology is is sort of seen as being at the forefront. You have nascent uh, sort of uh, film industry. Um, you, of course, have a booming theater industry of people like Bertolt Brecht and Kurt Weil who are there. Uh, you have it, it. It's a real um, sort of draw for the both the existing cultural elite of Germany, but then also sort of the aspirational, um, you know, authors and artists and so on and so forth. So, you know, Klaus Mann, who's the son of Thomas Mann, and I, I forget if I mentioned him in the last episode, but he's uh, sort of representative of this. And uh, it grows up in Munich, where Thomas Mann lives, but then moves at the age of 19, I believe, to Berlin in the early 1920s to sort of make a name for himself as an author. He publishes his first novel, which is essentially a coming out novel. It's one of the first openly gay novels in history um, and creates sort of a, a small scandal around this. Uh, so you have, you know, Berlin just has this electric energy to it in this period. Um, when it comes to the queer subculture, you not only have these sort of uh, developments that are happening at a very elite level with Hirschfeld and sort of political petitions, but you also have this booming um, subculture of clubs and cabarets uh, El Dorado is this famous nightclub in Schöneberg, uh, in, near Nolendorfplatz, which is still sort of the hub of, of gay life in Berlin. Um, so El Dorado is this famous, it's, it, it attracts, you know, queer people, um, people who dress um, in uh, sort of gender nonconforming styles. Uh, at the time, they're known as, as you know, transvestites. But, but anyway, it's, it's this booming, exciting place. So why don't we talk about paragraph 175 and its importance to the history of uh, Weimar mm -hmm. gay life? Yeah. So um, as I mentioned, you still have this law that comes from the 19th century. It bans sodomy. And again, it only bans uh, penetrative sex, right? So you still have to prove in court that anal or oral sex has taken place. And that generally makes it fairly easy for people to get off the hook, right? Because they can just show up in court and say, no, no, we, we didn't go that far, right? We only masturbated or, or whatever. Um, now, I think a lot of people, a lot of us who have seen Cabaret or have a sort of inkling about what Weimar Germany or Weimar Berlin was like, uh, would, you know, be surprised that this law was still on the books or that it was still enforced. But actually, what you see sort of ironically is an increase in convictions under it. Not a huge increase, but a sort of slight increase. And I think, you know, one reason for that is because there's this sense of openness that comes with the establishment of democracy and the fall of censorship. Um, and so people sort of let their guards down. And so it, it actually becomes a bit easier to win these convictions. I think the other thing that's important to 
bear in mind is that Berlin is not the same as the rest of Germany, right? You have various large cities such as Munich and Hamburg uh, and Frankfurt and Cologne and so forth that do uh, sort of closely or, or more closely resemble uh, Berlin for queer people. But then you have vast stretches of the country that is sort of small villages and, and rural areas. Um, and there, you know, life is not like that being depicted in in cabaret. So um, I do think that's an important thing for us to bear in mind. And I think that also you know, the, 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 the way that Berlin appears not only to us, but to Germans at the time is a major rallying point for conservatives, right? From the very moment of, of its inception, the Weimar Republic has enemies um, on the right. And one thing that they keep talking about is sort of the decadence of the big city and sort of the decadence of democracy and how they want to restore this, you know, quote unquote, traditional Germany that's rural. Um, you know, this all sounds very familiar. Right. To this is why today. I really don't like the category of decadence. I think it's almost implicitly anti-Semitic. Uh, it's anti-Semitic. Oh, yeah. It's anti-LGBTQ <laughs> uh, and, and it's anti-cosmopolitan. And and I, you know, I think it's kind of irresponsible when modern authors thinking of Ross that use that as like a real category of decadence. It's, it's, it's really kind of ridiculous. Um, but Sam, can we actually, what is, what is rural gay life like in Weimar? You know, we have this image of Berlin, and I'm sure we're going to keep on talking about it, but yeah. what is it What is it like? And why does paragraph 175 and this sort of efflorescence of liberalism, why does that continue at all? Yeah, no, that's, so those are great questions. Um, with what's, so there's not a lot of information about what rural gay life is like in this period. Um, in general, it's sort of, you know, it's, it's quiet, it's subsumed, it's not something... Um, you know, we we know that there are these convictions, people are being prosecuted for it, but there's not necessarily the same sort of identification. What's so remarkable about Berlin and these other big cities in Germany at this time period is that we know people self-identify as homosexual or as transvestites or as, you know, as these sort of modern sexual or gender categories. Um, I think sort of my guess is that when we, if you were able to find sources looking at the rural situation, you would find, and I'm sort of extrapolating from sources I found looking at the 1950s, um, you would find people who are engaged in these acts, but don't ascribe identity to them, um, right? That sort of modern category hasn't yet reached them. Um, but uh, in terms of why you then have paragraph 175, again, that goes back to the fact that you do have a powerful right wing throughout the Weimar Republic, right? Again, we think of Weimar as being a creation of the Social Democratic Party, and it was. Um, but even by the point, you know, Friedrich Ebert and the Social Democrats really have um, the upper hand immediately after the revolution. But they eventually succeed in calling for a constituent assembly that writes the constitution, and that assembly meets at Weimar, which is why it's called the Weimar Republic. And even at that point, uh, the Social Democrats don't get an absolute majority, um, right? They they have to ally with the Catholic Center Party, um, which is an explicitly Catholic party, and so it's sort of socially conservative. Centrum, Heinrich Brunig, genau, Centrum, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and 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 then the. Uh, German Democratic Party, uh, which is sort of a, a centrist, classically liberal party, and these these three parties are known as the uh, Weimar First coalition. Weimar coalition. There are yeah. many many more throughout the rest of the decade. <laughs> so, one question that I did want to ask in this moment is. What is the status of one coming out? Because my question is: Do gay people serve as a constituency 
of mm. the SPD? Is it, are, is it useful to think in that way? Or is it still sort of like you're living in a gray liminal space where you're not fully out, but some of your social circle might know what's going on? I'm just trying to get a sense of like the social yeah. reality in this period. Yeah, no, I think it's more the the latter that, you know, some people you know might realize that you're, you know, a man who has sex with men or a woman who has sex with women. Um, it's not necessarily, and again, it's paragraph 175 is still in force. Even if you live in Berlin, it's still not completely risk-free to sort of be open about this. Um, you still have a lot of sex that's taking place in the context of cruising. Um, so it, it's not um, like you can sort of, it, there's no like equivalent of Grindr or, or these dating apps where you can go and find someone to, to have a relationship with. Um, Kurt Hiller, who uh, was a close, he was a communist and sort of anarchist thinker, uh, a close associate of Hirschfeld's for much of the Weimar period. Uh, he, you know, on the one hand, is writing these treatises about the right to one's own body and why paragraph 175 needs to be done away with. On the other hand, he's out in the Tiergarten, which is this massive park in central Berlin, cruising for sex with you know workers or, or soldiers. So uh, it's not, even if you belong to these sort of elite circles, you can't be necessarily totally open about it. Hirschfeld even, you know, is sort of quiet about his own homosexuality. And uh, certainly if you don't belong to those elite sort of circles, you probably are are going to be even more reticent to describe yourself in in that way, if that makes sense. Totally. Uh, How does the homosexual... I just want to say, sorry, Sam, I just want to commend you for for, uh, putting the image of Grinder in the 1920s <laughs> out there in the world, like Grinder by Telegraph or something. I think that's that's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, Sam, uh, what I was curious about is how did the homosocial experience of World War One inform all of this? Yeah. Was there a lot of homosexual contact in the trenches? Do we know anything about that? Was that something that crossed people who might identify as gay and people who might not identify as gay? But it seems like spending years in trenches with your buddies is going to result in some exchange. Oh, yeah. No, it definitely it definitely led to more sort of homosocial, homoerotic, homosexual contact because and and this is something that isn't you know any uh, single sex institution that people are confined to for long periods of time. We know that that leads to what's called sort of situational homosexuality, right? This is something that is true in prisons. Um, there's a great study about this in American prisons by um, a scholar named uh, Regina Kunzel. Um, and uh, um, now I've lost my train of thought. Oh, but 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 in terms of World War One, you have you know essentially when it comes to sexuality, these two uh, quite potent and and strange trends. On the one hand, you have this incredible sort of um, homosocial camaraderie, these bonds that get created in the trenches in the war, um, and then all these soldiers return and they believe. I don't think we've talked about this yet. They believe they've been quote unquote stabbed in the back. Um, right, this is this sort of anti-Semitic, anti-communist legenda. <laughs> exactly, the Dolstos legenda, um, and so basically, this is a conspiracy purposefully cultivated by the imperial military, by Paul von Hindenburg um, and Erich Ludendorff, who are the two sort of heads of the German military in in World War One. They basically don't want to take responsibility for Germany's military defeat, um, and so what they sort of agree upon is that they're going to 
place the blame on civilians. They're going to place the blame on the socialists, on the communists, um, on Jews, um, on people who were alleged war profiteers, and say that they stabbed Germany, they stabbed the German military in the back. Um, and this is specifically actually why the military urges the Kaiser in the last weeks of the war to turn the government over to a civilian government so that they will have to take the blame. They'll be the ones to sign the armistice. Um, this then, you know, sort of takes hold. Uh, and so you have all these right-wing men uh, with these sort of homoerotic experiences of the war who, you know, uh, believe that that they didn't actually lose the war, that, that it was sort of stolen from them by these enemies at home. And so that's how you get people like Ernst Röhm, who is a friend of Hitler's. He joins what is originally the German Workers' Party and then becomes the National Socialist German Workers' Party um, early on in its existence. Uh, and he eventually rises to become the chief of staff of the Nazi stormtroopers, the SA. And uh, he is a gay man. Um, he, you know, is... Someone who he's a man who has sex with men, um, and it's quite clear from his writings, from his letters, that he connected these two. He connected the fact that he was a you know fascist with his sort of homoerotic sensibilities, and moreover, we know that that wasn't uncommon. Um, Friedrich Radzuweit, this man who I, I mentioned earlier, he actually conducted a poll of readers of his magazines, um, and I think he polled about. I want to say 10,000 people, I, I, but that might be a wrong number. But he pulls a huge number of people, and I believe about a third of them respond that they are members of right-wing or far-right political parties. And again, that's totally not what we think of as, as, as how queer people would vote or how they would sympathize today. But I think the important point is back then, a lot of queer men actually saw being sort of having right-wing sympathies and their attraction to other men as, as being compatible. And this goes back to sort of the masculinist movements that we were talking about in the last session. Can we talk a little bit about that and sort of the, the queer identification of masculinity and its association with the extraordinary reactionary yeah. right? Because eventually uh, Hitler does turn on this, you yes. know, so it, so we I'm sure we'll talk about that later, but just setting the stage for the connection that exists in the 1920s but with someone like Röhm yeah. and, and, yeah, and no. later history. Yeah, absolutely. So, so basically, um, as as I think I, I at least mentioned in, in the last episode, for those who listened to it, there is sort of the the dominant aspect of the evolution of of homosexuality and, and sexuality, um, which is that sort of represented by Hirschfeld, right? Which is that this is um, being homosexual or being queer is something that is inborn. It is an essential component of someone's character, of, of someone's sort of character. Um, this is where we get the idea of sexual identity, and, and you have various sort of disagreements and debates among all these people. But there's this sort of general agreement, um, and this is how we still think of it today. I mean, queer queer theorists and queer scholars um, often take issue with this, but but there is this, I think, at least broadly and popularly, still this notion that this is something that is is deeply important to someone's character. You then have this other group called the masculinists. And they basically completely disagree with this. They think that everyone is basically bisexual and that sort of homoerotic bonds between men are just as important to the healthy functioning of state and society as are romantic bonds between men and women. And they basically think that Hirschfeld and people like Hirschfeld, they are medicalizing um, sort of rom romantic or affectionate bonds between men, um, and thereby they're sort of uh, turning them almost into a disease, right? They're pathologizing it. 
And so they reject this. They're also, I mean, it's important to note these masculinists, they tend to be um, deeply misogynistic. They don't really see much place for women outside of, you know, bearing children and being, being mothers. Um, they are also deeply racist and anti-Semitic. Um, one of the big reasons they reject Hirschfeld is because Hirschfeld is Jewish, and they sort of see, you know, and of course this has to do with the fact that that psychiatry um, and, and psychology are seen as sort of Jewish sciences, um, and so there's there's this sort of noxious complex of of racism and misogyny that informs these views, and that carries on into the Weimar period. That's how you get people like Room who are able to essentially see their attachment f- to other men not as a source of weakness, but as a source of sort of virility, right? They see this as being more masculine than sort of straight people. I'm sure they make connections to things like the Sacred Band of Thebes, too, and this anti- uh, neo-antiquity-type uh, anti- ideology. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, they they definitely draw on all sorts of themes from antiquity, right? I mean, the Greeks and the Romans are, are incredibly important sort of inspirations for them. You have a lot of writing about, you know, Alexander the Great and um, Hadrian and, you know, these these sort of figures from antiquity who were known to have male lovers, and but were, again— it wasn't seen as a weakness, but rather as a source of sort of strength and virility that that people like Room could could look back at, at and um, sort of take as evidence um, for their own for their own masculinity. So I have a question about Room specifically. Is someone maybe not even him, but is someone like him? Do they identify as queer or gay or men who have sex with men, or does that category not matter? And is someone like Worm, would he say at some point he's going to have a child with a woman and even maybe a wife, but he'll have this, his real, you know, vitality is going to be in a different sphere of life? Yeah. I mean, someone like Worm isn't going to. Yeah, they're not going to be as explicit about it. They're not going to come out and say, I'm gay, I'm queer. Um, you know, they see even the idea, the term homosexuality, they associate with people like Hirschfeld and this sort of medicalized view of sexuality that they reject, um, right? They think that Hirschfeld essentially by trying to um, minoritize, so so you have these, um, uh, Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick, the, the queer theorist, uh, came up with a sort of categorization of our contemporary or modern idea of sexual identity is minoritizing because we see people who are gay or queer or whatever as being a minority, a sort of discrete identifiable minority. By contrast, the masculinists are um, um, universalizing because they see this as being a sort of characteristic or an attribute that that is across the entire sort of, you know, uh, group of, of humans. So, um, Basically, someone like Room isn't going to buy into the language of Hirschfeld and that sort of group. But, but they, you know, we have letters from Room where he is quite explicit about having affection or having sort of sexual um, desire for other men. And in fact, the Social Democratic Party uses that against him to try and sort of damage the Nazi party at the polls in 19, I believe it comes out in 1932. Um, and Lori Marhofer, who's a wonderful historian at the, at the University of Washington, um, your colleague, right, Danny? Um, <laughs> uh, so they, you know, have now published two really important, wonderful books on sort of homosexuality and Hirschfeld and, and the Weimar Republic that I highly recommend. Um, but uh, but 
Marhofer basically looked into uh, Rome and the effect that his sexuality had on Nazi electoral prospects and found that uh, in spite of the Social Democratic Party's best efforts, it didn't actually make much of a dent in support for the Nazi party. Sam, can you talk a little bit about, a little more about how these uh, two camps kind of interacted with one another? I mean, you, you talk about re- the rejection of Hirschfeld, obviously, because he's Jewish, but mm-hmm. there is an overlap here. I'm curious if there was any kind of what the sort of interaction between them was and if, you know, taken outside sort of the formal camps, what gay men in, in Germany, in Weimar Germany would have, you know, w- was it possible to take sort of a bit from here and a bit from there, kind of synthesize? Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and how did that how did that sort of operate on, on uh, uh, the sort of popular level? Yeah, no, I think it's easy to sort of get too caught up in these in these sort of formal distinctions that to some extent we sort of as historians have come up with and and imposed on the era. Um, But no, I mean, certainly even at the level of sort of the the elite level, you do have figures who try to sort of synthesize. And again, Friedrich Radzovite, this publisher, he sort of tries to to play both sides, as it were. Um, Again, he's he's the one who pulls all of his all of his readers and finds that, you know, a big chunk of them belong to the right, but also a big chunk of them belong to the left. He actually works with Hirschfeld to form what's known as the cartel for the reform of the sexual criminal law. Um, And they almost succeed in getting paragraph 175 reformed. Someone like um, Ernst Röhm is actually a supporter of reforming paragraph 175. Uh, And so you certainly at that level, you do have efforts to cooperate. Adolf Brand, who's the publisher of the masculinist magazine Der Eigene, also collaborates on these efforts, even as his magazine, you know, is denouncing Hirschfeld and sort of sexology as being, you know, Jewish science or, or whatever. I mean, using these sort of misogynistic and, and anti-Semitic tropes to um, attack people like Hirschfeld. So yeah, there, there, at, at that level, there is some cross-pollination. And certainly when you get down to the level of sort of ordinary people who aren't necessarily involved in queer politics or who aren't necessarily, you know, writing for these magazines, I think they would have had uh, a much more flexible engagement with both sets of ideas. They, um, you know, might have read various magazines or been exposed to various magazines. They might have flirted with the Nazi party or other far-right parties as well as, um, you know, leftist parties. I mean, we know, for instance, there's a huge amount of cross-pollination just at a broad level between the Communist Party and the Nazi party. There are a lot of former Nazis who become communists and vice versa. Uh, so, yeah, I think... I think it, Damn, horseshoe theory, right right here, horseshoe well, theory. Well, so, okay, but here's the thing. I actually don't believe in the horseshoe theory. I always try to dissuade my, my students from buying into it. But, you know, at least I think... I think there are brief... I think in the context of Depression-era Germany, right, where you have a lot of people coming into both the Communist Party and the Nazi Party because, to some extent, they seem like the only parties that are taking the sort of crisis seriously. They're the only parties that are sort of listening. And so I think in that context, there is some truth to this notion. But um, it's a, it's like It's a general anti-establishment. Right, exactly. And so I think feeling, if, if you're... seeing now, I mean, in yeah. a lot of places, like just... Yeah whatever the establishment is, is broken. Let me try to find something. Right. And, and so it I takes think, you in weird directions sometimes. Exactly. And, and and so in that context, I think you do have a bit of this sort of uh, cross-pollination. But, um, I, oh, I wanted to mention, you know, Christopher Isherwood famously has this case of, you know, he, he is sleeping around in Berlin and um, one of the uh, sort of working class men that he had, had had a relationship with, one day he sees him wearing a brown-shirted 
SA, you know, uniform, a, a Nazi uniform. And so you definitely have this sort of cross exposure. These aren't sort of two hostile camps facing each other that never have anything to do with each other. Um, you even have, uh, there's, um, you know, this notion that some people, and such as Friedrich Radzuweit, try to cultivate that the Third Reich, quote unquote, the, the when the Nazis take power, that it might actually be good for gay people because you have figures like Ernst Röhm, because he knows that there are a lot of uh, gay, you know, gay Nazis, at least initially. Um, but uh, that, of course, and, and we'll get into this, but the fact that you do have a certain attraction. At, within the essay in particular for queer men is precisely why the Nazi party um, becomes so rabidly homophobic um, early on in, in, in its rule um, because it has this deep paranoia about uh, gay people within its own ranks. So we'll, we'll get to that in a future episode. Let's return yeah. to Weimar now. And we're, we're in 1920-ish, 1920, <laughs> yes. 1921. Uh, how does the hyperinflation of those early years, does that have any effect on uh, the community in Berlin or in Germany? Or just how does it develop over the course of the, the early to mid-20s? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the hyperinflation, it, it's interesting. I think a lot of people conflate the hyperinflation with the depression. And there are obviously two, there are two distinct phenomena. So you have the hyperinflation of the early 1920s. Essentially, the German government um, has been saddled with this immense war debt because of the, the Treaty of Versailles. And in order to both pay it off and meet all of its domestic obligations, it basically prints more money. And this leads to hyperinflation, not the kind of inflation we're dealing with now. We're talking about just orders upon orders of magnitude of inflation within a matter of days or, or weeks. Um, you have people who are actually you know, burning bills uh, for heat because that it, it, this is more cost-effective. They're using it as toilet paper or whatever else. Um, and so this it lasts for a fairly brief time. The government eventually introduces a new currency, um, and it stabilizes. Um, you know, I don't, I've never thought about it as having a specific effect on on queer people. I think, you know, queer people suffered in the same way as, as all other Germans. I think if we're thinking about its effect on, um, on sexuality, probably the biggest impact is that all of this early instability, right? Weimar is incredibly unstable in its early years. It's not just the hyperinflation. It's also uh, connected to this, the occupation of the Ruhr, uh, which is a sort of coal-rich part of Western Germany that France and Belgium occupy in order to sort of extract these reparation payments. The, I mean, the Treaty of Versailles just as a whole, which is seen as illegitimate by most Germans, whether they're on the left or the right, um, and then uh, political violence. You have extreme political violence in the early 1920s. People like Walter Rottenau, who's the Jewish, um, and actually, uh, it's thought, gay uh, foreign minister. Um, he is assassinated in the early 20s. You have various other important politicians who are assassinated. Uh, and so all of this sort of conspires uh, to um, help the far right. And the at the time, it's called the uh, German National People's Party, the DNVP. It becomes a quite prominent party in parliament uh, in these years. And so in that sense, I think the initial optimism and hope of this sort of liberal democratic republic that the social democrats were going to create um, sours very quickly. And that sort of reaches its high point in 1925 when Paul von Hindenburg, the, le the military leader from World War I, is elected president 
after uh, Friedrich Ebert dies. And so, you know, Weimar goes from being this, this moment of opportunity to, at least politically, a much more conservative creature. Well, Sam, uh, that seems like a good place to end. We'll bring you back to talk about Weimar's second half, and and my uh, guess would be the early Nazi period. Everyone, go out to your nearest bookstore or your nearest good website and buy Sam's States of Liberation, uh, which we haven't even gotten to the Cold War yet, but hopefully <laughs> in the next few episodes we will. Sam, thank you so much, and we look forward to having you back. I think we might have gone backwards this episode. <laughs> yeah, we actually, like, yeah. <laughs> We started in 1819, ended in 1814. Uh, So, Sam, (laughs) thanks so much, and we look forward to having you back. Yeah, thanks for having me. We'll we'll get to the Cold War eventually. (laughs) Thanks, Sam. 